Richard Hollywood for Smart People for Wednesday, December 18th, 2019. I'm Nico. I'm your host, talking movies, television, music, and so much more in a way that smart people can enjoy them for this very special edition of Cultured. It is the Decade in Review. That's right. The 2010s are coming to a close. And your boy is here to wrap it up, stick it with a bow, and throw it underneath your Christmas tree. That's right, kids. I'm coming down your chimney tonight, baby. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, pretty crazy. We are two weeks away from the 2020s, and I know everyone on the internet is doing it, so why not join the white noise? That's my... (laughs) philosophy it is decade in review week here on too many thoughts media.com tmt.media for short if you go to the website right now uh well there's nothing right now but if you're listening to this on like thursday or friday afternoon go to that website because there is a plethora of 2010s related coverage tomorrow on movie hall of fame adam hall and i are running down the end of decade movie awards giving 15 awards to various actors, directors, and films that displayed excellence in the last 10 years. We recorded that podcast yesterday. It's a ton of fun. That release is going to coincide with a blog post that I wrote, and it's very long, and it's over 10,000 words, and I must admit, at time of recording, I have not finished it yet. But believe you me, it's going to be there tomorrow, come rain or come shine. I'm not sure you can get through all of it, I hope you can get through most of it. I just ask that you give me the click. You know? (laughs) I don't ask for much. A click is all I want for Christmas this year. And then tomorrow, or two days from now, Friday, two more blog posts recapping the best in television and the best in music. Plus some extra goodies on the website as well. So, now that the plugs are out of the way, Let's talk pop culture in the 2010s. This is a big decade for me. I've talked about this extensively. Um, You know, in 2010, I was 14 years old. It is now 2019, and I am the spry age of 24. So it's not like this decade necessarily represents the majority of my life, but it definitely represents the majority of my meaningful life, and it represents the entirety of my adult life. I grew up in this decade, which makes it wicked, wicked important to me. Um, I also started podcasting in this decade. I think um, I started the Nico show, which was like the first venture on my own in 2014. That was September 2014, over five years ago. I started doing Two Cents with Rob, I guess in the winter of 2012 and regularly in, in 2013, I guess, with Danny. Yeah. So it's been over seven years Since I started doing this, most of my adult life has been documented by MP3 files. And that's a crazy thought, you know, and it's also crazy to think about how much this process has evolved over the years. Like I started this show like on my iPhone, essentially. I got the voice memo app and I hooked up some Apple headphones and I spoke into them for a while. And when I was doing two cents, I used to record it in my college dorm room i remember my freshman year rob and i talk about this all the time rob danny and i would be on the phone together on a skype call and because my roommate never left the room 
I had to go in like the dorm stairwell with a massive echo and in order to like muffle the echo and get better sound quality I would have to broadcast underneath my shirt as people ran in and out of the staircase (laughs) so it's crazy it was a lot more loose back then and it was a blast but we didn't talk about anything of substance there was no topic to those shows and two cents radio still doesn't have a clearly defined topic now it's 2019 and podcasting has gone from not only a hobby uh but something I just did with my friends every couple weeks to a not so well paying career, right? <laughs> like the veracity through which I cover the world of popular culture is insane. And so when you do so many shows a week and you see so many movies and you watch so much television and you listen to so much music with the intent of recording your thoughts on a podcast, the way you think about media is obviously going to evolve. So I think at the beginning of the 2010s, I was a lot more enthusiastic about popular culture. I was certainly a lot more sincere in my thoughts about popular culture. I think now, uh, I, I wouldn't call myself cynical, but I would call myself more aware of the process and how the sausage is made. So that's going to affect the way I think about things. Um, But mostly, my life in 2019, and it's been this way for the last few years, is about ascribing narrative to chaos. That's why people listen to podcasts. That's why people read think pieces. That's why people consume journalism. Commentators and critics look for the narrative in the seemingly random. And so we come to the end of the decade and I feel uh, a responsibility to wrap it up with some sort of through line to give you a narrative to uh, contextualize the chaos. And I got to tell you, man, I got nothing. (laughs) I have no idea what this decade was all about. It has been a weird 10 years for pop culture, man. And maybe this is always the case. Actually, this is definitely always the case. Zeitgeist is an impossible thing to pin down. And history books are an impossible thing to write. So sometimes it takes 10 to 20 years in order to get a sense of the big picture. But if there is a narrative, I'm having a hard time finding it. I'm not even seeing a shred of narrative. I don't see any consistency In the world of movies, television, or music. And I did a deep dive into all three over the past month. I dug through every movie I ever saw, every television show I ever casually flipped on, and every album I ever listened to, every song I ever listened to. And there is no consistency whatsoever. Perhaps that is its own narrative. And we'll talk about it as the show goes on. I think technological concerns had a lot to do with it. But just in general, This has been a weird, weird decade. You know, I'm doing this podcast with Adam yesterday, and we're talking about our favorite movies of the decade, and it's like a shockingly good list. That was my big takeaway from that podcast and the piece I wrote for the website. It's an underrated decade for movies. A lot of awesome films came out in the 2010s, and many of them I saw in the theater, and many of them are going to live on in my head for the rest of my life, right? But I'm looking at the top 10. And there's only one movie of the 10 where if I walked up to a random person at the bar 
chances are they've seen it. You know? There are maybe, of my top 100, eight movies that I can, with confidence, bet you have seen. And I'm not talking about like hardcore movie fans like you and I. I'm talking about the casual moviegoer. Maybe they see two to three movies a year and they'll catch something on Netflix. There's only eight out of 100 you've definitely seen. That was not the case in the 80s. I was not the case when E.T. came out. I was not the case when Jaws came out. I was not the case when Jurassic Park came out. I was not the case when Pulp Fiction came out. And even in the 2000s, that wasn't the case when Spider-Man came out. Like, there were a ton of great movies from those decades that had mainstream audience appeal and universal critical acclaim. There's none of that. You have one or the other. You're either an artsy, independent A24 movie that makes like $3 million at the box office, does well during award season, and that becomes a darling of film snobs, or you have the Avengers in your title, or you have Star Wars in your title, or you have the Hunger Games in your title. That is the state of film in 2019. You can be good or you can be popular, but you cannot be both. There is no longer a consensus around certain movies. There is no longer a zeitgeist. And the same thing is happening on television. The same thing is happening in music. The same thing is happening on the stage. And the same thing is happening in literature. The monoculture is dead. Or at least it's as fragmented as it's ever been. And part of that, as I said, is technological. Netflix, Spotify, streaming media. There's more content now than there's ever been before. But I can't help but think part of it goes a bit deeper. You know what I mean? And I say this as a millennial and a self-conscious millennial, a millennial that thinks about his millennialness a lot. I don't make phone calls anymore. You know what I mean? Like when I was a kid, I used to make phone calls all the time from the house phone. I had like a phone with a cord on it. And I used to like play with the cord in my parents' room. And like I would call people if I wanted to get a hold of them. Now I like call my parents and that's it. I don't speak to anyone anymore, you know? <laughs> and when I do, it's usually behind a, uh, a, a layer of social media, right? So I know this is a cliche and I'm not exactly breaking any philosophical ground when I say it, but we are living in hyper-connected times yet are less connected to one another than ever before. Dating has become a digital process with Tinder, Bumble, Hinge. Commerce has become a digital process with Amazon. There is no reason to go to a brick and mortar store anymore. Workplaces have become more remote. More people are working from home than they ever have. And so when you interact with people less, when you have less conversations with one another, when you see each other less often, And when your interactions are confined to text messages, there is less of a need for common ground. There is less of a need for a common reference point. There is less of a need for a conversation starter. There is less of a need for art. Because that's what art is, or at least zeitgeisty art is. You go to movies to talk to your friends about it. 
You listen to music because that's what everyone else is listening to. You watch television because that's going to be the conversation at the water cooler tomorrow. When you remove the need for human interaction, you remove the need for commonality. That's why it's called pop culture. Popular is in the name. It is a shared language we can use to speak to one another. But if we're not speaking, we don't need the language. And in many ways, the fragmentation of movies, the fragmentation of television, the fragmentation of music has been great. There is more content and more good content than ever before. And it's content suited often to your specific needs. There used to be 15 television shows a week, 8 o'clock to 11 o'clock, and you watched them as they aired, and if you didn't like them, boo fucking who. Now, every imaginable genre starring every imaginable demographic aimed at any imaginable audience exists on Netflix. That's great. If you're a consumer of art, more is always better. But it has consequences. The fragmentation has massive sociological consequences. There is a thicker line drawn in the sand between you and your neighbor than ever before. And I hate to bring up the White House, but that is the story of the 2010s. We began this decade in the Obama administration. We concluded it in the Trump administration. Two men could not be more polar opposite from one another. Two men elected for seemingly opposite reasons. And now it's 2019 and we're wrapping up the decade with impeachment hearings. No one saw this coming because we're living in two different Americas. In fact, it might be three, four, five, six different Americas. Now, obviously, people have always had political differences, and they've always had cultural differences, even within the same country, and the same is true of art. Like, it's possible that you were around in 1991, and you couldn't name a single Nirvana song. It's possible that you were around in 1983, and you missed the finale of M.A.S.H. Sometimes we overblow the power of the zeitgeist, and I get that. But there is not one cultural event from the last 10 years that comes close to the cultural significance of Nirvana's Nevermind, that comes close to the cultural significance of MASH, that comes close to the cultural significance of Thriller or Jaws or The Beatles. There's nothing. There are social media apps. There are memes that get circled about for like 30 days and then fizzle out. But there's nothing unifying. There's not even like a world event that we thought of in the same way. There's no 9-11 this decade. There's no Kennedy assassination this decade. There's no civil rights movement this decade. There's no Vietnam War this decade. Again, the history books are yet to be written, as is the way we think about popular culture in the 2010s. But if I'm searching for a narrative... Sorry, guys, I don't have one. Let's get into this and take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about television in the 2010s. And my thoughts on that may surprise you. Stick around. It's Cultured. 
Um, so here's a fun stat for you. 2010, the number of original scripted television shows to air in the United States, 216. That's a pretty high number. I read that number. I'm like, damn, 216. Who has the time, right? <laughs> Funny me. Let's look at 2018. The data from 2019 not yet available. 2018, the number of original television shows to air in the United States across broadcast, basic cable, premium cable, and online streaming services. 495. More than double. In 10 years, there is too much content on television. Here's another stat for you. Oh, boy. This is a doozy. In 2019, Netflix released 371 original series on their platform. That is more than the entire television industry in 2005. Netflix and Netflix alone, the most powerful media company in the world. 371 original fucking series. Are you kidding me? So, like, what do you want me to say about this decade in television? There's a whole lot of it. And much of it is good. I wouldn't say all of it is good. I'd say most of it is not good. But in general, pretty good. I'm going through the list, right? I'm ranking my top 2025 TV shows of the decade, running down the list, right? And I'm expecting like classic after classic after classic. Here's what I'm expecting, right? I'm expecting the 2010s in television to be like the 1970s in film. If I was doing an end of decade list in the 1970s, oh boy, Godfather, Godfather 2, Taxi Driver, Jaws, Star Wars, Rocky, Annie Hall, Apocalypse Now, Clockwork Orange, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. You get my point. It was an awesome decade. But it was an awesome decade because the medium fundamentally changed in the 1970s. Autourism was starting to take shape. Directors, writers were given more power and producers stayed away. So guys like Martin Scorsese and Francis Ford Coppola and Steven Spielberg got big budgets to make whatever the hell they wanted. And great art came as a result. But it was a reaction. That's the key with the 1970s, right? It was a reaction to the rigid studio system that came before it. 50s, 60s, movies were being churned out in factory-like ways. There was not much creativity. There was not much inventiveness. And the medium needed to change in order to survive. And I think a part of me anticipated that the high volume of the 2010s would lead to sort of a new television golden age. But what I quickly realized as I was compiling this list, and by the way, some great TV shows on this list, but what I realized is that uh, we already had the 1970s of television, and it was the 2000s. It began with Sopranos in 1999, and it carried on with The Wire, and Deadwood, and Mad Men, and Breaking Bad, By the way, Mad Men and Breaking Bad ended this decade, but I don't consider them 2010 shows. But that was the golden age of television. That's when the medium was at its best. 
like four of my five favorite television shows of all time aired between 2000 and 2010. I'm not sure a single show from this decade would make the top 10 or the top 15. And there's a lot of great shows and I enjoyed watching them and I enjoyed writing about them and revisiting them for the website. But no, there's no Breaking Bad this decade. There's no Sopranos this decade. There's no The Wire this decade. And of course, the reason is instantly obvious. The Sopranos had urgency. Deadwood had urgency. Mad Men had urgency. These were shows responding to the old way of doing things. Much like the 70s golden age of film. The 2000s were responding and subverting and transgressing a rigid television system. You saw glimpses of it in the 90s, right? Like the 90s was dominated by sitcoms. NBC must watch television Thursday night. And you had Mad About You and you had Friends later on, but you had Seinfeld in there. And Seinfeld was a traditional television sitcom, except it wasn't. It had to play by NBC's broadcast rules, but it desperately wanted to break them. And it did everything in its power to break those rules and to stick a middle finger to the traditional way of doing things. And you can tell there was this this uh, this uh, building sense of resentment towards the rigidity of the broadcast system. So in 1999, David Chase comes around, who had worked on a number of network dramas. I think The Rockford Files was his most accomplished work at the time. He's a veteran television writer, and he's fed up with the old way of doing things. So he decides to make The Sopranos, and it's on this network called HBO, and it's a TV show, but it's not. It plays by the rules of TV until it breaks them. It plays into your expectations of television until it subverts them. It's a family drama. It's episodic in nature, except the patriarch is a mobster who goes to therapy. And he kills people, and he swears, and he works out of a strip club. And sure, it kind of feels like family matters. It kind of feels like the Jeffersons. But it's not. It's something far more sinister and different. But it's commenting on the television that came before, and it's pushing the medium forward. As HBO said, it's not TV, it's HBO. And that was huge. Although HBO had been around for a while, The Sopranos was a nuclear bomb. This elevated form of storytelling was possible on the small screen. And that's where you get Mad Men, that's where you get Breaking Bad, that's where you get The Wire. By the way, all came from writers who worked on broadcast television shows. Vince Gilligan worked on The X-Files. Matthew Weiner worked on The Sopranos. Had been around for a while. He creates Mad Men. Uh, David Simon, I guess, is, is not the most traditional writer. But you get my meaning. The 2000s were a reaction to the era that came before. And that's what breathes life into art. Subversion and remixes. Something different, but yet something so familiar. The 2010s is just a bunch of long movies, right? I mean, that's television now. 
It was so successful in the 2000s. Breaking Bad was such a massive hit for not only AMC, but Netflix, who distributed it, right? And we got obsessed with binge watching, and we got obsessed with prestige television dramas that we can sink our teeth into, and they're hyper-serialized, and they look like a movie, and they feature movie stars. So we figured, eh, let's just make a bunch of movies, and let's get out of the way, and let's give creative people, sometimes television directors like David Fincher, Big budgets to do whatever they want. And we'll make 11-hour movies and we'll break them up into 11 parts and we'll call it TV. But it's not TV. It's not really TV. It's something else. It's something that's been around for the last 50 years, if we're being honest with ourselves. There is no longer this sense that television content is changing. The way that we distribute the content is certainly changing. And streaming media is perhaps the story of television in the 2010s. But in terms of the actual shows, there's not that sense of urgency. There's not a sense of rebellion. There is nothing HBO can put on the air on Sunday night that would surprise you. And so the art is not as good. And it's not the fault of these people. Like, it's not the fault of the Succession writer's room that The Sopranos was better. Succession is a phenomenal show. It's one of uh, my top two or three shows of the decade, and I love watching it. I look forward to it every Sunday night. But, like, uh, (laughs) it was cool when Don Draper was having affairs with women. Uh, Whatever Kendall Roy does on a yacht is neither here nor there to me. You know? Better Call Saul. Brilliant. There is no show on TV that is more consistently well-written, well-acted, and well-directed than Better Call Saul. It's a miracle that that show even exists. And at times, I feel like it rivals the quality of Breaking Bad. But Better Call Saul is nowhere near as important as Breaking Bad. It is nowhere as earth-shattering as Breaking Bad. It is nowhere as zeitgeisty in Breaking Bad. So that's always going to give it the edge. And here's what I'm worried about, right? Here's what I'm worried about. We have 495 television shows, probably more once uh, FX tallies up the count from this year. We are in a golden age of content. We are oversaturated with niche programming. Streaming has fractured the marketplace more than it ever has. I'm worried that the 1970s is going to repeat itself. Because film historians will remember a movie called Heaven's Gate, which came out in 1980, directed by Michael Cimino. It's five and a half fucking hours long, and it's often considered one of the worst movies ever made. Not just because it's bad, and not just because Chris Christopherson stars and is terrible in it. But because it represented a massive shift in the film industry. For 10 years, auteurs ruled Hollywood. They were given big budgets to do whatever the hell they wanted. And then Michael Cimino comes around with $44 million and free creative control and delivers an absolute stinker. Heaven's Gate grows $3.5 million at the box office. And then we have the 80s which were factory-made, mass-produced, cheap, family-friendly entertainment. 
Nothing wrong with Gremlins. Nothing wrong with Back to the Future. Nothing wrong with E.T. But none of those movies rival the great films of the 70s. Something leads me to believe we're heading towards the heaven's gate of television. Something leads me to believe that in the next few years, I don't know when, I don't know how, I don't know what network is going to initiate this change. But someone's going to fuck up. And studio executives, network executives, are going to look around in the boardroom and think to themselves, why don't we start canceling these shows? Why are we making so much TV? I was thinking about this in regards to Twin Peaks The Return, which, spoiler alert, was my number one television show of the decade. Absolutely floored me. David Lynch, 18 parts. I've talked about it on several podcasts. It's a miracle that thing was birthed into the world. I I cannot believe I got to spend 18 hours in the Twin Peaks universe immersed in David Lynch's crazy head. Right? Great show. How the fuck does that thing exist? Why? Why did Showtime feel the need to make it? I'm sure part of their concern was like awards consideration. I'm sure they thought Twin Peaks would do well at the Emmys. Working with David Lynch uh, brings credibility to your network and generates buzz and generates critical acclaim and word of mouth can't be a bad thing, I suppose. And the other thing is they probably see a value in having Twin Peaks on their streaming platform for the next 10 to 20 to 30 years, right? That's part of the value as well. But there's only so much value you can get out of something so niche. There's only so much value you can milk out of something like Twin Peaks The Return, which is weird and absurd and sometimes funny and sometimes overdramatic and slow and artsy, and I couldn't recommend it to anyone. When is the bubble going to burst on the television boom? I don't know. For now, I'm happy we have so much content. Don't get me wrong. Netflix, Hulu, Apple TV+, Disney+, all beautiful things. Because the more great art there is in the world, the more we win. But I'm telling you what, I'm looking down the great TV shows of the 2010s, and I couldn't help but shrug. And that shocked me. Here's hoping the 2020s bring something a little more ambitious. This is Cultured, the decade in music after the break. All right. So um, back in the day, back in like 2014, when I first started doing the Nico show, I would spend like 90% of my podcast talking about my fantasy team. (laughs) I was younger. I was more naive. And it was my first season playing fantasy. So it dominated every episode I did. So I would like go on iTunes and I would read reviews and then I would get emails from listeners and I would go through tweets. And what I quickly realized is that no one wants to hear about your fucking fantasy team. So I stopped and I think that decision worked out for the best. I don't talk about my fantasy football team anymore because it's just not interesting. It's like an ass or an opinion. Everyone's got one. Nobody wants to see it. So... Um, what I'm about to do now, I acknowledge, is just as bad, if not worse, than talking about your fantasy team on a podcast. So please, bear with me 
as I recite the details of my Spotify decade in review. <laughs> I hate to be that guy, but I have a point. Trust me on that. Um, here we go. Spotify, my decade wrapped. If you have a Spotify account, you know what this is. If you have an Instagram account, you probably know what this is, and you're probably sick of it by now, but we'll get through this quick. Here we go. Top five artists of the decade for Nico DiGregorio. Number one, obviously, Yeezy, Kanye West. Number two, also not surprising, Kendrick Lamar. Number three, The Beatles. Number four, Bob Dylan. And number five, kind of surprising, Chance the Rapper. Top five artists of the decade. Three of them contemporary. Three of them put out music quite frequently. Three of them, I felt a sense of urgency every time an album of theirs dropped. I still pay attention to Kanye West incessantly. And when he puts out something, I must listen to it. I must consume it as much as possible. So look, I'm not ignorant to music in the 2010s. I'm not the biggest music guy in the world. I occasionally talk about it on this podcast and I know what's going down. I pay attention even in a limited capacity. I know when Taylor Swift gets in a fight with Scooter Braun. I know when Drake does something stupid at a Raptors game. I know who Justin Bieber is dating. I know who's beefing. I know who's hot. I know who's not. I can keep up, bro. But, like, there were only five artists this decade I cared about. And there were maybe 25 albums I listened to on a loop over the last 10 years. The other two artists on the list, the Beatles and Dylan, uh, they did like all their best work in the 60s. (laughs) Like I love Dylan's electric period as much as the next guy, but trust me, all the stuff I was listening to was pre-1975. So this goes back to what we were talking about before with the fractured monoculture and the rapid changes in technology. When you put out an album in the 2010s, you were not just competing against your peers. You were competing against all music mankind had ever recorded. And that's a massive hurdle to get over. That is a difficult, hostile environment to try to put a stamp on. It was brutal for artists to break through. And obviously, social media, streaming, Spotify, SoundCloud, YouTube, Open the door for artists that normally wouldn't get a shot. But in terms of capturing a zeitgeist, it was close to impossible. Just close to impossible this decade. In fact, if you captured that zeitgeist, if you were a Drake, if you were a Beyonce, if you were a Kanye, if you were a Lana Del Rey, if you were a Katy Perry, if you were a Taylor Swift, all of which did awesome work in the 2010s, your shelf life was much shorter than it would have been in the 80s. Or in the 90s or in the 2000s for that matter. Like when Thriller came out, that was on the radio for five years. Nonstop. It's also a time when people listen to the radio. Now in the age of uh, viral album releases, surprise album releases, dropping an album at midnight, listening parties, social media, in this age, you listen to an album If you like it, you add some songs to a playlist or two. Maybe you revisit it a few times in the next four weeks. And then it's on to the next thing. 
so again, I'm combing through the best albums of the decade and I'm making my top 10 list. And please do me a favor. Go read that blog post as well when it drops on Friday. Uh, That was a fun one to write. It's sort of personal and esoteric and a little offbeat. It's not like a traditional top 10 list. I had a lot of fun with it, and I think you would enjoy it if you read it. So go to the website, check that out when it drops on Friday. But I'm going through my favorite albums of uh, the decade, and there are the obvious ones. There are the albums that were so replayable and so present uh, on the radio and at bars and online and just like songs that certainly captured the zeitgeist. And I put all of those albums on the list. Adele, Kanye, Kendrick. All did earth-shattering stuff. But then I keep going, and it's like, uh, oh yeah, uh, Jack White, and uh, the Black Keys, and the Arctic Monkeys, and Chance the Rapper, as I just talked about. And I'm not seeing, like, again, a through line here. I'm not seeing an identity. I'm not seeing a sound. I don't know if I'll be listening to these songs 30 years from now and think, oh yeah, the 2010s. That record had a real 2010s groove. I don't think I'm going to be saying that. And obviously, that may be totally untrue. History is written by the victors. We know that. But this was a real fractured, splintered decade without a sense of identity. And that is rubbing me the wrong way. I got to be honest with you. Again, the disclaimer is, of course, streaming is good for art. Of course, more music is good music. More opportunity is better for everyone, consumers and artists alike. And if you can find something that speaks to your specific voice and your specific interests, more power to you. But this decade saw the collapse of terrestrial radio saw the collapse of online MP3 sales. iTunes is no more. We no longer buy MP3 files. We no longer buy CDs. The only physical media we buy is vinyl records, and we hate people that do that. (laughs) It's all streaming. It's all there for you whenever you want. And I got some news for you, folks. The new Mumford & Sons album has nothing on Abbey Road. The new Bruno Mars record has n- <laughs> has nothing on Free Will and Bob Dylan. The music from the 60s is better than the music of today. And now era doesn't mean anything. To be contemporary does not mean anything. It means something if you want Twitter followers. It means something if you want Instagram followers. It means something if you want to make TMZ. But Like, who is Drake to compete with Madonna? Who is Kanye to compete with Prince? And they're all there at your fingertips. And it's leading us to a more fractured state. And that is kind of discouraging. I got to be honest with you. I look through the eras, right? I think about the 70s, which had this incredibly progressive rock and roll sound and it was propulsive and it was new and it was fresh. And then the eighties kind of got silly. Uh, it was very pop oriented and, uh, people wore afros and perms and, uh, a lot of neon colors and they roller bladed to fucking (laughs) little red Corvette. 
And it's not the greatest music of all time, but it at least had a sound. And then the 90s, the grunge movement began, and hip-hop really started to take root in this country. And it was so invigorating. There was this rebellious spirit in the music industry, and there was something different and fresh. And the 2000s, I mean, it was mostly pop-oriented, and I would be lying if I said pop music wasn't always the most dominant form of music. Pop has always been a thing, and I do not mean to disparage the genre when I say this. But the 2010s had nothing unique. The 2010s often paid homage to previous eras and uh, often produced catchy pop tunes. But what is the sound of this decade? What are we going to think of when we think 2010? I don't know. I don't fucking know, man. My Beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy is one of the great albums of my lifetime. But zeitgeisty of an era nostalgic. Am I going to hear life of Pablo in 2035 and and be reminded of my high school prom? I don't know. The technology is just changing too quickly. In fact, it's changing so quickly. We as consumers don't know how to keep up with it. We don't know how to listen to it. We don't know how to watch it. And this idiot on a podcast certainly doesn't know how to talk about it. But I'm going to keep trying. I'm going to keep chasing after the culture as long as my legs will allow me. And as we come to the end of this podcast, and as we come to the end of this cultural decade, which I would call a mixed bag at best, that's the narrative. Life's moving fast. People are moving farther apart. And technology is affecting us in ways we never thought possible. And it's left you and I in a state of limbo. We're confused. We're puzzled. We don't know what to make of our modern culture. But you got to keep trying. As we move to 2020, a new decade, hopefully filled with great television, great film, and great music. You got to keep asking the question, why? Because that's all we got. And believe me, I'll be here with you every step of the way. Confused as all hell. All right. Uh, Thank you for what has been a wonderful year of podcasting. A wonderful decade of podcasting. I am not done churning out content for this website. Um, I will probably do one more episode of Cultured between now and the new year. And of course, plenty of Why Is This a Thing content and Movie Hall of Fame stuff on the website as well. One last time, please check back on the website, tmt.media, toomanythoughtsmedia.com for those three written pieces coming over the next two days. Uh, It it was a lot of work and a lot of fun, and I think uh, it will be a fun journey down memory lane reminding you of the great pop culture you consumed this decade. Uh, I love you. I love you so very, very much. And I'll be back here whenever you need me because you know what happens then. You and I get culture!